Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Federico Santangelo joins the show again. On June 6, 2021, Dr. Santangelo joined the show, and we had a conversation about Sulla, a former Roman consul, military commander, and dictator. And in that conversation, the historical figure and former Roman consul and military commander Gaius Marius came up, who lived in the same period of time in Rome as Sulla. And so Dr. Santangelo joins the show and is going to share more about what scholars know of Marius's life. Dr. Santangelo is professor of ancient history at Newcastle University, based in the UK. He has written many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. Marius, which was published by Bloomsbury, and the Italian edition of that book, which Dr. Santangelo wrote the translation for, and is entitled Gaio Mario, and was published by Juvance. Welcome back on the show, Federico. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew. It's wonderful to see you again. It's wonderful to have you back on the show, Federico. Okay, to start with a overview type question to create sufficient background and context for the conversation we're going to have, who was... Gaius Marius. Gaius Marius was uh, someone who reached the uh, almost unparalleled distinction of seven consulships. He was consul seven times. He was elected to the consulship seven times. Um, He led um, two major military uh, campaigns, one in North Africa against King Jugurtha, one uh, in southern Gaul and northern Italy against the Cimbrians and the Teutons. Um, at the end of the 2nd century BC uh, to major military achievements, especially the the latter. Um, That uh, really established his reputation as as by far the greatest military commander of his generation and one of the greatest ones in Roman uh, history. At the same time, he was also a very controversial personality, uh, very divisive, especially in the final part of his life uh, and uh, career. And indeed, one um, that remains a figure that remains very controversial in uh, Roman um, historical tradition and more generally in Roman political culture. As you said, yes, uh, a contemporary of Sulla, although he was actually 20 years older than him, really, but they did overlap very much and they did clash um, bitterly and uh, violently. Um, after a uh, short-lived phase of orderly and very successful cooperation. Okay, so you've outlined uh, some points there that to some extent we'll probably talk about all of them in more more detail. Um, let's start with the early period of his life to create some chronology in the conversation. So what's what's known before, before he has a career, a military career and a political career, what, what do scholars know about the early period of his life? Let's maybe start with his, his parents. Do, do, do scholars know anything about his parents? Well, not much, actually, as it happens. And not a good deal about his family, either. Um, and much of what we know, most of what we know, comes from the rather brilliant um, opening chapters of the biography that Plutarch devoted to him, um, late 1st, early 2nd century uh, CE. Um, in that biography, uh, Plutarch makes much of the fact that Marius came from uh, um, a small town uh, somewhere south of Rome, a community of Roman citizens, but nonetheless uh, a place very different from Rome, a place called Arpinum, modern Arpino, 
that no doubt a, a number of listeners uh, will already be familiar with because it happened to be the hometown to Cicero, to Marcus Tullius Cicero, who was born 50 years old, just over 50 years after, after Marius. Um, so Marius comes from this uh, small town background. Um, in fact, we're told that he's born in a, in a rural district just outside this, this town. But anyway, he's someone who spends his early years uh, away from the ways of the city, the corrupt ways of the big city, but certainly also from the um, all sorts of intellectual stimulation that the city can, can bring. We know very little about his family, as I said. Some, some ancient sources actually say that he was from... Uh, that he belonged to a rather modest family. Um, uh, I, I think that's highly doubtful. Um, we can, I think, fairly confidently place him among the well-to-do families of, uh, of that small town. And at some point, we don't know exactly when, we don't really know how, we can speculate on why, he moves to the big city. He, he moves to Rome. And that's where he, no doubt, completes his education about which we know precious little anyway, uh, and he then uh, embarks on a military and political career, or a military and political trajectory that very soon earns him um, distinction already in his uh, uh, mid-twenties. But about his background, we know very little. Uh, Plutarch and other sources do point out that he was never... Well, he was never a literary type, right? That he really took no interest in literature, in philosophy, and that he took no interest in Greek literature and philosophy. And Plutarch clearly is not appreciative of that. And in fact, he explains really some, some flaws and indeed also some criminal behavior on Marius' part later on in his life with the fact that he wasn't really conversant with Greek wisdom and that he never really thought about how to comport himself um, in, a, in a wise and responsible and fully responsible way. But yes, we can certainly place him in, uh, in this uh, uh, rural uh, or semi-rural background. And when he comes to Rome, he is, to a large extent, uh, an outsider, albeit one that's fully integrated within the Roman citizen body. What year is it believed that he entered politics, or circa? And can you describe what the geopolitical environment in Rome would have been like around that period of time? Well, um, it depends, I suppose, on what we mean by entering by entering politics. Mm -hmm. um, well, we know that he was born in one five eight one five seven BC. That much that much we know. And then we know that. Uh, in the mid-130s uh, BC, so basically when he is in his uh, uh, early 20s, he takes part in the campaign at Numantia in Spain, uh, a major military campaign, and a, and a military campaign that had gone on for longer than uh, um, was usually the case when Rome was engaged in a major military undertaking. Uh, the clash between Rome and the uh, Iberian city of Numantia had started in the early years of the 130s uh, and really had come to no successful resolution for, for, for Rome until the intervention of the great Scipio Aemilianus, the conqueror of Carthage, uh, 146 BC. 
Marius takes part in this campaign. And as he takes part in that campaign, uh, even though he's someone who does not belong to a distinguished family, uh, and in fact he's not even you know, from Rome originally, uh, he's noticed. He gets noticed by the commander-in-chief, uh, by the imperator, um, and uh, his qualities are very readily recognized. In fact, there is a, there is a memorable anecdote uh, that places him Having, having dinner with Scipio Emilianus and others and having his military prowess, and indeed more generally, the great sort of uh, potential uh, that, that he had, both in the military and political sphere, being very emphatically recognized by Scipio Emilianus. And this is, a, this is actually a crucial theme, if you wish, in Marius's career. The fact that he is someone who does not come from distinguished, from a distinguished background, Maybe, maybe he doesn't come from humble beginnings, but he's not someone that belongs to a family of the uh, Roman nobility, of the senatorial nobility, uh, far from it. Um, and yet uh, he embodies uh, standards of, of virtue, of virtuous behavior, that are very much aligned with the tradition and the practice of the good old days. We then know, to answer more directly your question, that he gets elected to the tribunate of the plebs uh, uh, for the year uh, 119, which actually, you know, is, is well over a decade uh, after the conquest of Numantia. And that really speaks to a very slow political uh, rise. Even, even though his talent gets recognized at, at Numantia um, and clearly establishes a, a strong reputation, at least in some quarters, it takes him a while before he's in a position to put himself forward for uh, public office. So in this uh, l later second century BCE, BC, what was the ge geographical demarcation of Rome? If you were to describe it on a map at this point in time, and what do you think if, if scholars know, or, or may, maybe you, you have to infer to some extent, but what were the, what were the, um, the ambitions of Rome or what was the foreign policy of Rome at this time? What was their o overarching objective, do you think, in this period of time? Because so far you've mentioned a few places that aren't on the Italian peninsula. So, right. So, yeah. So if you could describe in, in, the in this period of time, so when he's starting his political career, uh, the later later part of the second century BCE, what was the what was the demarcation of Rome geographically, and what what was the what was the overarching policy? Do you think of Rome from a foreign policy perspective? I suppose we we've got to go back to the great uh, uh, achievement uh, of Scipio Millenius, uh, one four six BC. We got to go back to the fall of Carthage. We got to go back, in other words, to the uh, complete demise of the long-standing enemy of, of Rome on the Mediterranean stage. Now, even, even by the end of the 3rd century BC, it's abundantly clear that Carthage is no longer in a position to be an alternative to Rome, a meaningful alternative to Rome as a hegemonic power in the Mediterranean. But nonetheless, 146 BC is a, is, a major, is a major watershed. And of course, that year also coincides with a victorious campaign of Rome in uh, Greece and with, uh, with the sack of Corinth, um, which had been a center of anti-Roman resistance. Um, so it is abundantly clear to everyone that Rome is the dominant power 
in the Mediterranean from a military point of view, and to a large extent, uh, that hegemony also has a political dimension. But we should not be thinking of the Mediterranean uh, at this point, in the mid, uh, in the third quarter of the second century BC, shall we say, as uh, unproblematically and consistently Roman territory. Right? We shouldn't really be thinking of of the Mediterranean in this period, uh, in the ways in which we've been taught to think about space by you know modern historical atlases, um, you know, with with, with states. Uh, with neatly defined boundaries. Things are much messier, things are much more complicated. Um, and we certainly have Rome as a, as, a major, as a major power. We have a number of Roman provinces across the Mediterranean, uh, in the Iberian Peninsula. We have a, an increasing presence in uh, southern Gaul. Um, we start having a degree of structured formal interest in North Africa. And of course, we have a presence in uh, the um, in the Greek East. In fact, in 133 BC, you have the creation of the province of Asia in the western part of Asia Minor. But when we talk about a province, Roman province in, in this period, again, we're not talking about a neatly defined administrative district with tightly policed borders. The word provincia in Latin from which province derives, originally means assignment, task. And really, when we talk about Roman provinces in this period, we're first and foremost talking about, really, a, a governor, an army, a very light administrative structure that enables Rome, I suppose, to extract resources from a particular territory uh, and to command the cooperation and loyalty of at least a part of the local population. Um, but it is clear that, yes, by this point, there are provincial structures, administrative structures, across the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean world. And indeed, you're quite right. Much of what goes on in Marius' uh, life and career, so to speak, uh, goes on beyond Italy. Um, there are some exceptions that I'm sure we'll come, we'll come to later, important ones. Um, but uh, yes, uh, Italy, Italy is very much the centerpiece of this developing imperial structure. It is not at this time a land of uh, uh, Roman citizens, at least not all of it. And when we think about Italy, we've got to think in this period, we've got to think of a place that's full of towns, full of urban settlements, and in which there is, a, I suppose, a, a mosaic or a jigsaw puzzle or whichever image you prefer of uh, uh, legal statuses, of communities, in other words, that have different legal statuses. There will be communities, like Madis' hometown, Arpinum, of Roman citizens. There will be Latin colonies, i.e. colonies founded by Rome, but whose inhabitants are not Roman citizens. There will be some colonies that are inhabited by Roman citizens, on the contrary. And then there will be lots of communities that have um, bonds of alliance, uh, an equal alliance, but nonetheless of alliance with Rome, but there are not communities of Roman citizens. Okay. And yeah. then, of course, you have Rome, this uh, expanding, thriving, and messy city that in many ways is a, has a story of itself. 
history shows that Rome expanded a lot in the in the uh, next few uh, centuries. But it sounds like in this period of time they were ex- expanding. They were they were they were they hadn't reached the apex of the amount of hegemony they would eventually have. But it sounds like they were in this expansion mode. Is that a reasonable thing to say? Absolutely yes. And what I think. Um, would be really worth finding out more if the sources were a bit more helpful in that respect, would be to get a sense of the different approaches to expansion and to the empire that uh, existed within the Roman governing class. Not everyone was in favour of uh, unbridled, boundless expansion. Far from it. Uh, In fact, it's fair to say that probably the majority view within the Senate was to have, yes, expansion, yes, very effective exploitation of the territories conquered or anyway controlled by Rome, but without overstretching the reach and the resources of the political and military structure of the Republic. What were the responsibilities of the Tribune of the Plebs? And could you also um, uh, dovetail, if possible, into the circumstances, what's known about him becoming consul for the first time after? Oh, absolutely, yes. Okay, Let, let's start with the tribunes. Mm-hmm. Um, you get 10 tribunes of the plebs elected uh, every year in Rome. Uh, they've got to have uh, exceeded a certain age limit, but the, the key requirement in order to become a tribune is that you're not a patrician, right? that you don't belong to one of the uh, most ancient and distinguished families in Rome that belong to the patrician order. So someone like Marius, who was a Roman citizen, but who did not come from a family of any distinction, was certainly in principle qualified to run for that office, uh, whose roles really were, on the one hand, to protect the interests of the plebs, of individual members of the Roman plebs, of individual members of the Roman citizen body that did not belong to the distinguished families. Um, and so, for example, to protect them from abuse, from the abuse of a man, by a magistrate, for example, even beating, you know, physical violence, that sort of thing. But it wasn't just about protecting the, the interests of, of, of the plebs, it was also about promoting the interests of the plebs. And when Marius holds office, holds the tribunus in 119, well, it's only a few years after the uh, meteoric rise and fall and catastrophic fall of two great tribunes of the plebs. Tiberius Gracchus in 133 and his brother Gaius Gracchus in 123, uh, 121 BC. Those two uh, tribunes had actually promoted a major plan of social reform, social and economic reform, which had fundamental political implications and which revolved around a major land redistribution program. Um, now, not all those that held the tribunate of the plebs were people that we would define as radicals, right? They were not necessarily in favor of major social reform. Um, far from it, actually. Um, and as a, as a matter of fact, we don't even know what Mario's position on, on the Gracchi was um, and on the whole issue of, of land reform, at least in this period. Um, now, I think in order to try and make sense of his rise to the, to the consulship, uh, we've got to perhaps remind ourselves of what uh, the Roman magistracy system uh, looks like, right? You have, at first, lots of junior magistrates, lots of quaestors being elected every year. Um, then you have ten tribunes being elected. 
Uh, and then you have fewer praetors being elected, uh, six probably in this period. Um, and then you have only two consuls being being elected, right? And you can't, in principle, stand for the consulship unless you held the praetorship, and you can't stand for the praetorship unless you held one of the lower magistracies, and so on. Um, so it gets more and more competitive as as you make your way up the ladder, as you make your way up the so-called cursus honorum, right? The, the, the pathway of uh, public offices. Um, now, that's when it gets interesting, I suppose. Because for someone like Marius, man from Arpinum, a man whose family did not feature a single senator, um, to aspire to the consulship was, well, would have probably looked rather hubristic. Uh, or if you want to put it in less hostile terms, you know, pie in the sky. And yet at some point, as he is in his early 50s, or sort of approaching his early 50s, in, uh, in, one, uh, in 108 BC, he makes a decision to stand for the consulship. And he wins comprehensively. And, and how does that come about? Well, largely on the back of his uh, extraordinary um, contribution to the Numidian campaign, to the campaign against uh, King Jugurtha in uh, Numidia, where he serves as, a, as, a, as an aide to the consul uh, Metellus, uh, Achilles Metellus, um, and uh, where at some point, as the campaign is unfolding, uh, he decides that, well, Metellus' leadership is not quite as decisive, but not as successful as uh, the campaign uh, would require, and that really he's got to put himself forward. And uh, clearly the standing that he's reached with the army, and also at Rome, clearly by that point, encourages to think that he might be in with a, with a shot. And, um, well, he goes back to Rome, puts his candidacy forward, and he wins the election comprehensively. And for those listening, um, if so an episode has not been fully covered on Juba the First in the past. However, uh, Dr. Duane Roller, a a professor emeritus from the Ohio State University, was on the show, and we, we covered uh, Juba the First's uh, son, in the past, Juba II, who yeah. who um, eventually became um, a king of uh, Ner- uh, Mauritania and was yes. um, uh, married to Cleopatra VII's daughter, Cleopatra Cellini the II. So a little bit of background for, for everybody there as different things get connected in the Mediterranean basin. Absolutely. So was it common or uncommon for someone to be consul seven times in their life, I don't want to make I don't want to make a presumptive, uh, you know, make it into a presumptive question, but it just seems like that that would be a more uncommon th- thing. What it was it was it common or uncommon for someone to to be consul seven times in their life? No, no, it was unprecedented. Okay, uh, you know, at least hadn't really been seen for for, for centuries. Um, the um, the achievement was was utterly uh, astonishing. Nothing short of that, and just to some extent, of course, that reflects on uh, the extraordinary qualities of this of, of this man. But it also, I think, um, reflects on the um, extraordinary circumstances in which Rome found herself at the time. Uh, first, yes, there was the Jugurthine War, an important conflict, and again, a conflict that had 
been very controversial and very divisive in Rome for a number for a number of reasons. There were rather different views on how to deal with that regional crisis. Um, but it was a regional crisis, and it was a regional crisis that was really unfolding away from home. Although many Romans and many Italians had stronger economic interests in North Africa, but it was away from home. What really changes everything, and what really turns out to be the turning point in Marius' in Marius' career, uh, is the invasion from the north, um, first into southern Gaul, what is now southern France, uh, and then, even more warmingly, into northern Italy, of uh, populations of uh, Germanic stock, the Cimbri and the Teutons, or Teutones. Um, that, again, starts in the late 2nd century BC. Uh, there's a major uh, Roman defeat in uh, southern Gaul in, in, in uh, 105, and by that point it becomes clear that the threat presented by these populations can potentially prove an existential threat for Rome. And of course, by the stage, the notion, whether it's an historical or a mythical one, will be for another conversation. But anyway, the notion that Rome had already faced a terrible invasion from the north in 390 BC, the, the, the invasion of the Gauls, uh, was very strongly embedded in the Roman historical conscience and political culture. And so the, the, the possibility of a, of a replay of that uh, catastrophic threat uh, was was simply uh, unbearable. And at that point, Marius is widely hailed as the man who can solve that crisis. And he's elected a number of consecutive uh, consulships, um, mm. now, 105, uh, 104, 103, 102, 101, 100, in recognition of the fact that he's the only one really who can lead that complex campaign really on two fronts, southern Gaul and uh, northern Italy, to a successful completion. Did, did any scholars, Federico, write about his physical size and um, military strategies at all? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, because it sounds like he's had a lot of successes military-wise. Is there anything that can be, is there any evidence about uh, whether, you know, whether his, uh, his physical size, his level of dexterity, his, the way he thought about, about military matters? Um, was anything left in the records about, about that? Good question, uh, if I may. Um, well, there is something in general about his appearance at the start of Plutarch's Life of Marius, which, as you might have figured out, I do think is a, is a great read in a number of respects. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's, a rather, it's a rather peculiar uh, reference to his appearance. Plutarch says to have seen a statue of Marius in Ravenna, of all places, in central Italy. Uh, and uh, uh, and to have therefore gotten a sense of what the likeness of that man was and the, the sternness of his of his appearance and of his look and um, 
but he actually doesn't say a great deal more about Marius as a, as a young or sort of as a mature man until his narrative reaches the uh, final years of Marius. Uh, after his uh, um, fall from political grace in the 90s, um, when uh, Marius tries to orchestrate a political comeback, he's getting older, he's getting on a bit, and uh, he wants to be seen training, doing physical and military training with much younger guys in the Campus Martius. And on the one hand, that scene of him training really hard with these much younger, much fitter blokes is testimony to his drive, to his commitment. But it also, Plutarch says, a bit of a, bit of a sorry sight, really, because it was by that point abundantly clear that the man was, was aging and was not necessarily aging well. Um, now, here Plutarch, no doubt, is resorting to contemporary or maybe contemporary sources who clearly do not approve of Mario's politics and not just of his looks. Um, but there is that reference, basically, of, of, of you know, to, to Marius, really, as someone who is not aging, not aging well, and is not perhaps accepting aging uh, in quite a in quite a um, full and and contented way as he could have been expected. Is anything known about his disposition? Was anything left about that in terms of how how he got along with people? How, how, you know, how, just how, how he was socially. There are some brilliant references to that in, uh, in Sallust, in his account of the Jugotine, of the Jugotine War, uh, where, again, not a great deal is said perhaps about his uh, character, um, although references are made to the fact that he comes from this rural background, uh, that, he's a, that he's a new man, but at the same time, he's, he's also very true to the values of Roman tradition. But, um, Reference is made repeatedly to the fact that he shares the toil um, and the risks and, and, and the major threats, really, um, that his men, that his soldiers also face. He's someone who really leads by example. Uh, and by leading by example, um, of course, turns out to be an extremely successful and extremely fundamentally credible leader. That's not a charismatic one, but a... Uh, a credible, an eminently credible one, and um, and the same the same image really of of someone who, yes, takes his leadership very seriously, but believes in leading by example, also resonates through a speech that Sallust attributes to him, without its to a large extent a literary construction of Sallust himself, um, and which allegedly Marius gave uh, during his election campaign for the consulship. Um, Plutarch also corroborates this story, but he then um, expands a great deal on Marius' turn for the worse in his final years. In his final years, when uh, really his rivalry with, with Sulla uh, comes to the fore and becomes in many ways the dominant uh, factor in Roman politics, at least for, for a few years, uh, they're both terribly keen to secure a military command in the east against King Mithridates, uh, Sulla first is granted that command. He's the serving consul, after all, in the year 88. Um, but Marius gets that command assigned to him by a vote of the people. 
and that triggers a constitutional crisis. Sulla marches on Rome, and Marius has to flee the city. Uh, in fact, he has to flee Italy. He finds shelter in North Africa, of all places, near Carthage, where he spends several, several months. And then at some point, um, he, he catches wind of the fact that the political situation in Rome has changed. Uh, Sulla has left. He's gone, he's gone to the east, he's gone to Greece and Asia Minor to fight the campaign against Mithridates. And the, the power, really, in the political power in, in Rome has been seized again by people who are actually opponents of Sulla, notably a man called Cornelius Sinna. So Marius sees a possibility for a, for a comeback, both a sort of a physical comeback to Italy, but a return to Italy, but also a political comeback. Um, and so he returns to Italy, sails back to, to, to Italy, um, he docks somewhere in Etruria, and he raises an army. He raises the private army, um, which we're told also included a number of slaves, or a slave militia, um, and he becomes a major political force in uh, what is a very fraught political uh, setup anyway. In that context, in 87 BC, he then puts himself forward for his seventh consulship. Um, and he secures election to it. It's a consulship for the year 86 BC. But it's a consulship that he gets to hold for just two weeks, because in mid-January 86, he dies after a short illness. Although, although according to some ancient sources, um, he might have committed suicide possibly because he feared Sulla's return, news of Sulla's success in uh, the East, or early success had come, had come to him, perhaps he feared another civil war, but, and he committed suicide. I, I don't think there is enough evidence to believe that. I think it, the idea of a natural, of a death of natural causes is much more uh, credible. But um, I was recently reading, sorry if I'm digressing very briefly, I was recently reading this wonderful work that Napoleon Bonaparte wrote and St. Helena, on Caesar's Gallic campaign. It's basically a, a commentary on Caesar's Gallic campaign, where he actually talks about all sorts of aspects of Roman history. And I noticed that at some point, Napoleon states that Marius did commit suicide. So clearly Napoleon found that story credible, and perhaps, who knows, he had some sort of personal interest and appeal to him. The last time we chatted was about Sulla's life and spent quite a bit of time on Sulla going to the East. And there was, this, there was a controversy between Sulla and, and, and Marius. And so this time we're speaking more from the perspective of, of Marius. Can you, can you summarize what that initial controversy was that appeared, my understanding is it, it appears that that controversy um, were the antecedents to the eventual civil war. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. It's, it's, the, it's the core of the matter. They both felt that they were the best man for the job. Um, Sulla in 88 BC was the consul. He had, in other words, uh, full entitlement over taking up a, a province, a provincial command, a military campaign, and the Senate bestowed the military command against Mithridates to him. That was a perfectly straightforward and traditional course of action. What Marius claimed, and no doubt others also thought independently, was that actually he was the best qualified man for the job. Even though he was 20 years older than Sulla, even though, according to Plutarch, he was aging, you know, 
Never mind. He was in his view, and in the view of many others, no doubt, the right man for the job. And what happens is that as Sulla is actually literally getting ready to leave for the East, he's training some troops uh, somewhere south of Rome, um, a tribune of the plebs uh, puts forward a bill to the people uh, whereby Marius is granted the command against Petridates. And that's why I refer to a constitutional crisis. Because on the one hand, you had sort of established political and constitutional practice. We've got a consul. He's well regarded by the Senate. He takes up this command, this important military task. But on the other hand, we have the people voting a law that uh, bestows that command to someone else. And, uh, well, sometimes you have that sort of constitutional crisis. Uh, you, have, uh, you have a major political crisis. And when you have, as was the case then, uh, an army ready to go to the east, uh, somewhere south of Rome, well, you have recipe for, indeed, civil war. You have the conditions under which that army can decide to march on Rome and uh, restate the entitlement of its commander to the command in the east. And that's exactly what happened. Why do you think it was so important to both these individuals, this um, particular event, which one would be leading an army to, you know, to the, to the eastern part of the, to the east? Why do you think it was so important to both these individuals that uh, they individually would be the, the, the person leading that, that uh, they're given armies? Mithridates had, within, uh, within a few months, brought the Roman imperial presence in the East to an end, to a traumatic end. Um, and the military campaign against uh, Mithridates, the counter-offensive against Mithridates, was clearly, uncontroversially, the most important and the most demanding military undertaking that Rome um, had embarked upon in uh, half a century. Even bigger than Numantia, probably. Even bigger than the campaign in Spain that we were talking about earlier. Um, so, just in terms of reputation, or glory, if you wish, being in charge of that campaign was uh, uh, an incredibly attractive proposition. But it wasn't just about that. It was also about the resources, the war booty that that war would have generated. Um, being able to uh, seize control over, over a huge amount of resources, in the case of victory, of course, uh, would have enabled the winner of that war to um, widen his uh, consensus base, uh, would have enabled him to reward supporters to gain new ones would have placed him at the center of Roman politics for the foreseeable future. Okay, so to work our way into some closing questions, Federico, so to, to clarify then, when, when, he, when he died, that was during the Civil War. Be, is that, is that when, when that occurred? And, and scholars believe he didn't die in, 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 in battle. It sounds like there's some questions about how he died, but it's pretty clear he didn't die in battle. He certainly died at home and in his bed. Then some people um, claim that he might have committed suicide. Others claim, I think, with, with better arguments, um, that he, uh, he had some sort of sudden disease that had brought him to 
um, brought him to death. Um, but he certainly died in Rome. Did he die during a civil war? Yes and no. By the point he and his associates were firmly in control of the political situation in Rome um, and of the city of Rome, um, but it was abundantly clear that had Sulla won the war against Mithridates, and it looked fairly likely by that point, although not certain, but had he won, he would have certainly made his way back to Italy uh, at the head of a victorious army with you know, loads of cash, loads of, loads of bullion, um, and would have then engaged in a military action against the, the authorities in Rome, which regarded him as an illegitimate commander, but that he also regarded as illegitimate in turn. Um, is anything known about Federico... Uh, if Marius was was married, the number of wives, if there was more than, if there happened to be more than more than one that he might have had, um, ch children that he might have had, what's what's known about his family life? We don't know a great deal about the family life, but we do know about a wife and a very important one, and we do know about a son, an equally important one. Um, his wife was called Julia, and she belonged to the Gens Julia, the Gens Julia. Uh, she was, in other words, a patrician, a uh, female member of a patrician family. And the very fact that this patrician woman married a new man, a man from undistinguished beginnings, I think is testimony to the standing that, that Marius reached. We know very little about, as I said, the family life, about their marriage. But we do know that uh, um, when Julia died, in uh, 69 BC, so she outlived her husband by almost two decades, um, a funeral took place in, in Rome. And the eulogy of Julia was given by her nephew, a rather brilliant chap called Gaius Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar. And why then was that a, uh, not just a very important occasion for the Yuli for the against Julia, for the Yuli Kaiseres, uh, for the family, as it were. It was also a major political occasion because it was the very first time when uh, Marius' name was uttered in a public speech after Sulla's return and when Marius' portrait was publicly shown uh, at the funeral of his wife um, after Sulla's return. Because after Sulla's return, after the victory of Sulla in the Civil War, Marius' presence is obliterated from, from, from the city. His uh, tomb is desecrated by Sulla soldiers, possibly upon Sulla's orders. Um, but young Julius Caesar, well, he's in early thirties by then, uh, enables Marius to make a political comeback, a posthumous political comeback of sorts. And we also know about Marius' son, uh, another Marius, Gaius Marius, usually known by, uh, in, in modern discussions as Marius the Younger, uh, who um, actually held the consulship in 82 BC and was in many ways the leader of the military coalition that uh, uh, took on Sulla after his return from the East. Um, he dies in, in, uh, uh, in battle. Um, uh, he dies at Praeneste, uh, modern Palestrina, um, and... Uh, uh, 
fight, I suppose, down down to the end uh, in the name of a, of a cause that was certainly a political one, but had a very strong personal personal resonance to it. There's a there's a fragment of Sallust, uh, of Sallust histories that suggests that Julia was very unhappy at the prospect of her son Marius getting into politics and standing for the consulship. But I'm afraid we don't know much more than that. He um, was involved in a lot of um, military efforts. You you highlighted some of them during this episode, yes. um, and we covered quite a bit of that. I, but he was also consul se- seven times from more of a political perspective. So I want to I want to end with a um, a policies type question: Is he is he known to have created any policies that come come to mind that you think's worth mentioning? From a from a governance perspective, that you think was um, good overall for the people of the of 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 Rome. I suppose if we had to judge him um, by the standards of, of of contemporary politics, and I'm not saying we should do that, but um, we would probably say that he was actually very light on on policy. He got elected many times, but actually when we came to policy, uh, there wasn't a great deal uh, in there. Um, and after all, you know, most of his consulships were consulships that he spent on the battlefield, uh, especially in the, in the war against the, the Cimbrians and the Teutons. Um, so I suppose there are two um, flagship um, projects that, that or anyway, flagship themes that, that are worth bearing in mind. Um, the first one is uh, a set of agrarian laws of agrarian reforms or indeed of land distribution schemes i should probably say more accurately which uh, he did promote with a degree of success towards the end of the second century bc but unlike those uh, of the gracchi 20 or 30 years earlier those land distribution schemes were primarily addressed insofar as we can see to his veterans so it was about giving land to the guys that had served under him upon discharge they were not so much about giving relief to the poor now a number of poor people did enlist in his army, especially when he went over to uh, Numidia. Uh, and indeed, much has been uh, said about about that uh, um, recruitment uh, effort uh, on his part. But we are looking at land distribution schemes that are first and foremost for, for veterans. And then in the final part of his life, uh, he certainly stands out as someone who is strongly committed uh, to the full inclusion, full and quick inclusion of the Italians into the Roman citizen body. We didn't really have a chance to talk much about the so-called social war, which occurs in Italy between 91 and uh, 88, 87 BC, which is not a social conflict, as the name like that suggests at first, but it's a war against the Sochi, against the Allies. Uh, and it's a war between Rome and a number of Italian communities that did not have the Roman citizenship. And that at some point, start a major insurrection against Rome. Um, at the end of that insurrection, Rome prevails from a military viewpoint, but also has to, or decides to, grant the Roman franchise, the Roman citizenship upon these communities. And Marius was certainly one of those that advocated the uh, full and effective inclusion of these new citizens into into the institutions of the of uh, of Rome of the Republic, but um, 
whilst Sulla, this is my very final point, whilst Sulla is associated, quite rightly, uh, with, a, with, a, with a whole idea of, of a new Respublica, of a new Republic that he really puts into place, um, puts into place after, um, after his victory in the Civil War, during his dictatorship, Marius is not. And to, to a large extent, his wider political vision, well, proves elusive. Maybe it was there, maybe it was even articulated, but it didn't make its way to the sources that uh, are at our disposal. Interestingly, the, um, the social war came up in a, a recording this morning that I had with Dr. Raphael Scopacasa on ancient Samnium. So it's very uh, timely, that episode. When we're doing this Indeed. recording, that episode hasn't been published yet, but the recording just happened this morning. And maybe if you want to, if you want to cover the social wars sometime, Federico, get you back on the show, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk oh, about great the, fun. Yeah, that'll be great fun. Talk Anytime. about this. Yeah, talk about the social wars. Okay, um, so this is great, um, Federico. Thank you for thank coming you on much, coming on the show again. Great pleasure, as ever. Thank you. So again, everybody, the previous episode with Dr. Santangelo, which was on Sula, that was published on June 6th, 2021. And the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Santangelo wrote as examples, Marius and the Italian edition, Gaio Mario. I'll drop links to the previous episode and those two books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Federico and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.